This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dutch historian Rutger Bregman. Rutger joined me to talk about his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. He joined me to delve into the evidence for why and how most humans are actually pretty decent and just how radical it is to believe this. Rutger's book, Humankind, is out through Bloomsbury Publishing. And I'm really delighted to have with me someone who I've actually met in person before the coronavirus pandemic happened. His name is Rutger Bregman, and he is a historian, and he's the author of a couple of books now, one of which we discussed over, I think it was in 2017, It's called Utopia for Realists, and this new book that Rutger has written is called Humankind, A Hopeful History, and it's out through Bloomsbury, as was Utopia for Realists. Mm -hmm. So I welcome uh, Rutger now, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, it is really great. It's kind of weird to have met in person and now be restricted so uh-huh. severely. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder maybe first up, given that you've just released this book in the UK and I know you're about to release it in America uh-huh. and obviously um, around the world, but in terms of your experience releasing such a uplifting or optimistic book in a time of global crisis, how's your experience been going in terms of talking about these ideas? Well, I guess that many readers have the feeling that the message of the book is maybe quite timely, right? Uh, actually, the first two chapters of the book are about how people respond to crises. And there's this very old idea in our culture, specifically in Western culture, that when the shit hits the fan, that people basically go nuts, right? That in a time of, uh, of crisis, an earthquake or a tsunami uh, or another kind of natural disaster or during a war, that people sort of revert to their worst selves, that they become very selfish animals, monsters, and that civilization is only a very thin veneer. And this is a story that we've been told so often, you know, in in disaster movies from Hollywood, uh, in the news, you often see it. uh, In the book, I give the example of what happened after Katrina in 2005 when New Orleans was flooded. And the news is full of stories about people looting and plundering and, you know, being violent. Um, And... It turns out that this is actually wrong. So we've got a huge amount of evidence, more than 700 case studies from sociology uh, that prove that what happens in a time of crisis is that people pull together and you get this explosion of altruism and cooperation. And I think that if you zoom out a little bit and look at what's been happening around the globe, you know, in country after country, then sure, you can see some selfish behavior and you can count on journalists to zoom in on that, you know, people hoarding toilet paper, for example. But I think the vast majority of your behavior is really cooperative in nature. So, um, yeah, in that sense, um, the message is maybe quite timely. Yeah. Reading the book during this time, I really felt like it was an antidote to some of the more cynical news that we've been seeing and also the videos of people, as you mentioned, stockpiling toilet paper, Mm -hmm. which I'm glad to hear was not just an Australian phenomenon. (laughs) But um, you do open the book, the prologue of the book talks about a really uh, important time in World War II and the thinking that was behind the decision to not only bomb London and England, but also to bomb Germany 
and that we technically learned some lessons there but hadn't really later on implemented any of those learnings. I wonder if you could talk about the example that you give at the beginning of the book because I feel like it does set up this discussion we're about to delve into really, really well and I've, I actually thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. So at the beginning or on the eve of the Second World War, the military elites in Britain were very worried that once the bombs would start falling on London and other cities in the UK, that people would go nuts, right? That people would panic and that the military wouldn't get around to fighting because it would have its hands full controlling the population, right? And there were many psychiatric field hospitals set up because, again, they were so worried that people were going to be really anxious and depressed and, and that the spirit of the nation would be broken very quickly. Now, the bombs did start falling in 1940, uh, but pretty much the opposite actually happened. So this sort of keep calm and carry on spirit dawned over Britain, right? We've got these fascinating eyewitness reports of, yeah, people responding in a quite relaxed way and just continuing doing their job. Actually, war production went up quite a bit. And so the question was how to explain all of this. And what the military establishment did, and politicians like Churchill, is they said, oh, now we understand this is like British culture, right? We have such a strong national spirit is that this must explain the behavior of people during this crisis. But then in 1942, they had to decide what they would do with their bombers and airplanes, right? And there are basically two options. You can bomb strategic targets like factories and railroads, or you can bomb sort of cities and the population itself. Um, and what the, what the experts said is, look, um, we, the British, we're very different, obviously. Now, the Germans, they have a very weak moral character, so we can actually bomb them, and it'll be easy to break their spirit because they're very different. And that's what they did. In the end, Germany was bombed 10 times as heavily as, um, as Britain, and, uh, you know, pretty much the same thing happened again. So... After the war, there were teams of economists who went to Germany to study the effects of the bombing. And they found that actually the cities who you know, were hit the hardest by uh, the Allied forces uh, in that respect, um, they saw increased wartime production uh, compared to cities that were not bombed as heavy. So it was the same mistake made again. And, and it's just what, what they thought, that it was British culture, while in reality it was human nature, right? It, this is just what people do during times of crisis. They pull together. That was true for the British and that was true for the Germany as well. But somehow elites keep on making this mistake. Uh, also, for example, during the war in Vietnam, you know, they they bombed, I don't know, three times as many bombs on Vietnam as, as were used in all of the Second World War combined. And again, you know, no results because you can't break the spirit of a people in that way. Often it actually has the opposite effect. Yeah, that was the most interesting part I feel in that story was that it didn't just have a negligible effect. It actually meant that they might have been shooting themselves in the foot by actually yeah. conducting such severe bombing raids. Yeah, there are historians who think that because of the bombing campaign over Germany, uh, the war lasted longer. You know, there's there's one Nobel Prize winning physicist who was also part of the government at that time. I'm forgetting his name. Anyway, um, he said that probably the the war could have been over six months earlier if that if they had just studied uh, strategic targets. 
And that makes sense, right? Because they did do a little bit of strategic bombing during the Second World War, you know, especially oil refineries, etc. And that was really effective, actually. At some point, the Germans almost couldn't, you know, uh, use their tanks anymore because they were just out of fuel. Now, just imagine that they would have sort of continued doing this uh, on a rigorous basis, just focus on bombing the industry instead of bombing cities like Dresden, etc. Things could have turned out very differently. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, there's so many parts to this book. And when I was making some notes while I was reading, I was thinking about the different perspectives and research angles that you've really gotten into in this Mm -hmm. book. And I I know that you're a historian and it's very obvious also by the wonderful footnotes in the book, which I've got to say I really enjoyed too, because it did (laughs) add another a layer of meaning as well. But you do use so many other disciplines like philosophy, science and evolution, psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics. There were so many elements to this story and you've brought a lot of academic scholarship to bear that has been, through you, communicated not only in a very uh, understandable way but also you've had to take a huge step back to look at a really big picture because as this book is titled Humankind, that's exactly what you're looking at. So I I wanted to get a sense from you before we delve into some of the other areas of the book. When you were writing this as a historian, what were some of your aims in terms of the way you put this together and how you thought it could be best achieved? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that one of the problems with academia these days is that you have so many of these brilliant specialists who are so focused on their you know tiny subject is that they often don't realize what's going on in a field next to theirs right and this is what I literally experienced while writing this book at some point I was interviewing um, a psychologist her name is Marie Lindegaard and she's done some path-breaking work into the behavior of people during times of uh, when there's sort of a local emergency, you know, someone's drowning or someone's being attacked in the street. And she discovered, based on CCTV footage, right, the sort of the best evidence we have of, of people, how they behave in real life, uh, it turns out that in 90% of all cases, people actually help each other. Um, and I was talking to her about this really fascinating research. And then I, you know, I was telling her about uh, things that were happening in biology and evolutionary anthropology and uh, told her that actually biologists now believe that human beings have evolved to be friendly. You know, they literally talk about this concept of survival of the friendliest. And then she said something to me that I that I didn't forget. She said, oh my God, so it's happening there as well, right? So it was also it's also happening in a field next, next to hers. And this is really what the, the book is about. It's about the silent revolution that has taken place in science in the past, well, let's say 15 to 20 years, because scientists from so many disciplines, anthropologists, archeologists, sociologists, psychologists, they've all moved from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more hopeful view of human nature. And the only thing that I do in this book is just to connect the dots, right? To show that something bigger is going on. So I really believe that this book was in the air, right? It just, maybe it just took a time to, some time to write it uh, because there are few people who whose job it is these days to well to connect the dots right because we've got all these brilliant specialists doing their great work and I could never have written my book without all that work obviously I really rely on that uh, and we've got you know often journalists who go deep in investigative reporting 
but sort of the people whose job it is to zoom out, well, there are few institutions, right? There are few people who's, uh, yeah, who are actually being paid to do something like that. So I guess I'm, I've just been really lucky that I work um, for a Dutch journalism platform called The Correspondent that was founded uh, seven years ago. And uh, where I was given the freedom to uh, yeah, basically write whatever I want and uh, then study psychology for a couple of months and then anthropology for a couple of months and then sociology for a couple of months. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how this book was uh, born. It really comes across because there's just so many beautiful elements to it that are weaved together in a way that is very connected. And it's amazing to see your thinking. And I, I really appreciated that you stepped out your thinking for the reader so that we could go along your thought journey with you and raising those sceptical points where you're thinking, oh, well, you might say this, but here's my answer to that. One of the things that was particularly interesting to me as someone who appreciates philosophy was how you weaved that through the story and also provided a foundation for looking at things. And you bring uh, across two really important figures, Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I wonder whether you could introduce our listeners to those two very important figures and how they form a, an important part of this book throughout. Sure. So... Thomas Hobbes was a British philosopher who lived in the 17th century. And he basically believed that in the state of nature, as he called it, uh, you know, in our very deep history, when we still lived as nomadic and gatherers, our lives were pretty terrible. That's what Hobbes believed. So he described it as nasty, brutish and short in his famous words. And he also believed that there was some kind of war of all against all going on back in prehistory. Now, he had some good news as well, because at some point we got out of that. We, we invented this thing called civilization and we appointed a so-called Leviathan, sort of an all-powerful ruler who basically keeps people in check and makes sure they're not, you know, killing each other all the time. Um, so that is sort of his view um, humanity in its state of nature is, you know, very brutish and violent. But luckily, we have this layer of civilization that has been invented, uh, and that keeps us in check. Now, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote his work a century later, right? Th these guys have never met, but they're always sort of put in opposition to each other. Rousseau said, well, almost exactly the opposite. He said that actually, in the state of nature, we had lives that were pretty good you know we uh, were relatively healthy we were free uh, these societies were quite peaceful as well um, but then we made the big mistake of settling down right and and living together in a village or a city and inventing agriculture we, we basically invented civilization and civilization has been a huge disaster according to Rousseau we should never have done it it, it inaugurated the age of hierarchy, of patriarchy, of inequality, of wars, of famines, of epidemics, etc., etc. And uh, yeah, so this is sort of the big discussion between two of, well, probably the most important pol uh, political philosophers in Western culture. And so the question is obviously, who is right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it is, I have strong feelings about both, which I, I won't get into. But yeah, it was always something that I found super fascinating, and particularly Rousseau, because he has some very strong opinions on a range of things, including Rococo art, which gets me a little bit up and about. But um, <laughs> it, 
I, <laughs> I really was keen to talk about this idea of civilization, which uh-huh. is really essential to their arguments as well. Um, and maybe I could get your summation of how Rousseau perceives civilization and why it's such a horrible event. Yeah, yeah. Well, usually Hobbes is described as the realist, right? He's known as the father of realism. While Rousseau is more often described as this romantic revolutionary, this idealist with always dreams that, you know, are probably a little bit naive. That's what I used to believe, actually, and that's what they taught me, you know, in in university when I first heard of these names. But actually, while... I was researching this book and I was going deeper and deeper into the latest state of anthropology and archaeology. I started to realize that actually, you know, Rousseau was right about most of the things he said. I read his discourse on inequality again and sort of the the parts where he writes about, um, yeah, sort of what the transition of being a nomadic and together to being a farmer in a city dweller meant. And then compare it to the latest scientific evidence, and like, this is this is pretty much it, right? At some point, I had the idea of calling my book Rousseau was right, <laughs> because we've got now so much evidence that, uh, for example, if you look at war, um, we tend to think that war is this, you know, eternal phenomenon that human beings have always been doing it. It's probably that's probably not the case. So. For 95% of our history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers, and we've got almost no evidence for warfare among nomadic hunter-gatherers. Not from anthropology, right? From anthropologists who've actually studied nomadic hunter-gatherers who lived in the 19th century or the 20th century and gave us their ethnographic field reports. And also from archaeology, we've got pretty much no evidence from excavations or uh, from looking at cave paintings, for example. I mean, if there really was a war of all against all going on in our deep history you know you would expect that at some point an artist from the stone age would have said well i know what i'm going to make today you know i'm going to make a nice drawing of this war of all against all Uh, but we haven't found it but then after we settled down after we became um, farmers and and started to live in villages and cities then you do actually uh, find these uh, paintings of of people engaged in warfare Um, So here, Rousseau was probably right. If you look at other things, like, for example, his remarks on how healthy people were in the Stone Age, well, again, it seems he was more or less right. If you think about infection diseases, for example, we now know that all these terrible infection diseases like polio and malaria and the plague and COVID-19, right, they're they're all products of civilization because we live too close to our animals. And uh, they're, yeah, they're, um, they're, in that sense, they're quite recent phenomena. Um, and we also know that actually the lifestyle of nomad- nomadic hunter-gatherers is much healthier than farmers. You know, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you have a varied diet, you know, a bit of vegetable, vegetables, a bit of fruit, a bit of meat. You have a lot of exercise. Now, when you have to uh, farm all the time, you make the same movements every day you your your back starts to burn you eat you have uh, the same menu right uh, grain 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 and uh, yeah you know the, the saying is no pain no grain so um yeah it's sort of a pretty terrible decision basically to become civilized and uh, it yeah it's it, it's in that sense really interesting that this french guy who has so often been dismissed as the romantic as the idealist uh, was actually uh, ahead of his time in that respect. 
Yeah, exactly. And you were writing a lot in the book about um, these early nomadic tribes or groups and how they uh, were very intelligent and that we weren't the only ones, I guess, that we are one of many that we came from, that there were five other homo X, um, you know, and that there were Neanderthals and that there were before us so many others. Mm -hmm. And you'd talk about, well, why did they kind of disappear? Why didn't they last? What made humans, as we are now, the ones that stayed and actually in some way conquered the planet, although I don't agree with that way of thinking of things. But I wonder whether you could take us through some of the ideas and some of the science that you discovered and uncovered about how humans evolved and what what made them really interesting and special. Sure. So this is obviously one of the great questions about our history, right? Um, why did we populate the whole globe and why did the Neanderthals do it, right? Why is the president of the United States uh, a human being and not a chimpanzee? Even though some people might think he's a chimpanzee, but he's not. <laughs> um, I mean, that's really the question. What makes us so special? And the answer that we've tell, told ourselves for a long time is that we're just really smart, right? That it must be our great brains and that, yeah, we're, we're capable of, uh, yeah, uh, great intelligence or something like that. Um, Turns out that actually the evidence for that is really weak. So if you do intelligence tests and you let a human toddler of around two years old compete with a pig or a bonobo, then usually the pig or the bonobo wins, right? And people should keep that in mind when they eat bacon, uh, but that's another book. But the point here is that, no, we're not that special. Individually, people are not that smart. Actually, we get most of our knowledge from other people, right? We learn most of the things we know from other people. Now, are we then so uh, mean or are we so violent or are we so strong? No, probably probably neither. If you compare us to, uh, well, again, for example, chimpanzees, I, I wouldn't want to do a boxing match with, uh, with a chimpanzee, you know, it would probably totally destroy me. So um, it's not that we're so smart. It's not that we're so strong. That what makes us special, right? Why that we uh, populate the whole globe? And why are the Neanderthals gone? What biologists and evolutionary anthropologists now believe is that our true secret superpower is in fact our friendliness. Is that we are able to cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. And you see this in the design of our bodies actually. So one really striking thing that I came across during my research is that human beings are, apart from some parrots, uh, who also have this ability. Uh, we're the only species among primates and among mammals that actually have the ability to blush. Which is really striking, right? Well, how could it ever have been an evolutionary advantage to us to involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else, right? And the answer that scientists now give is blushing helps to establish trust. Because then you know that someone takes your ideas and your opinions seriously, right? Shame is this incredibly powerful force in human societies. Now, another thing that's really special for, uh, to us is, uh, well, you see this if you look into our eyes. Um, we are the only primate, and there are 200 primates in total. We are the only primate that have white around our eyes, uh, which means that you can follow our gazes. You know, it's really easy to see what people are, are looking at. In which, in which direction they're looking. 
all the other primates, all of them, you know, the chimpanzees, the bonobo, the orangutans, you name it, they have dark around their eyes. So it's much more difficult to see if they're actually looking at you, which also obviously makes it more difficult to establish trust. You know, they're a bit like poker players wearing shades or, you know, mafia members who wearing wearing shades. Um, so this is, uh, this. these are sort of two very fascinating things. They're sort of our cooperative eyes and this blushing that helps us to cooperate. Now, there's now also a name for this whole theory in biology. Um, biologists call it self-domestication theory. And the idea here is that we've basically done to ourselves what we also did later to some animals, right? So we know that cows and goats and sheep, they've been domesticated, right? They've been selected for tameness and for friendliness. And we know that there's a whole list of things that happen here. Scientists talk about um, domestication syndrome. So this is a list of traits that domesticated species have, uh, you know, thinner bones, smaller brains. And in general, domesticated species just look more childish, uh, pedomorphic, right? Just they, they look quite childlike. And then you look at the bodies of, of human beings and you compare them uh, from 50,000 years ago, 40, 30, 20, 10,000 years ago, and you see exactly the same process. You see this process of domestications. Our brains getting smaller, our bones getting thinner, and we look more childlike compared to our ancestors. And the thing is, this is our true superpower because this has helped us to cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. Yeah, it's really amazing. And I love the term survival of the friendliest. Um, yeah. And I love the anecdote that you got from Charles Darwin about the fact that he was writing to people he knew from different countries to check whether they also blushed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, he was one of the first scientists to notice this, right? That blushing is really a peculiar human thing. And um, yeah, you really have to account for that. If you have a much darker view of, of evolution or of human nature... Right, that supposedly there was this war of all against all, and that it's really all about competition. Then how can you account for this fact, right? That we that we are the only primate, the only mammal who actually have the ability to blush. Now, obviously, there are some of us who rarely blush, right? Uh, I mean, the Donald Trumps of this world—they they don't. I don't see them red. It's more orange, probably. But I mean, that's a, that's a whole different chapter of the book, obviously, because we also know that power corrupts, right? And and people who are on the influence of the drug that we call power, they sort of become plucked out of society, right? We know that they, their empathy doesn't really work anymore. They sort of lose the ability to, uh, to uh, blush. And um, this is something that nomadic hunter-gatherers already knew, you know, 10,000s of years ago. They knew that those in power had to be controlled, basically, by the group. And they used uh, shame here. They used group pressure uh, and therefore, if you wanted to survive in a nomadic, nomadic hunter-gatherer society, and we know this from ethnographic field reports, um, what you had to do is you had to be humble. Humble was really prerequisite for surviving because otherwise people didn't like you and you wouldn't have enough friends. And friends was the most important thing if you wanted to survive, right? You couldn't survive with possessions or, you know, with material stuff because, I mean, you would be moving around all the time. But what you sort of the, the kind of riches that you could build up, sort of the treasures in life that you could have is friends. So people were not collecting uh, stuff. They were collecting friendships because that was sort of the most important thing that helped them to survive. And here, this this humbleness was, was incredibly important. 
Yeah, the fact that they would enforce humility was really interesting when I was reading those examples you were giving. One of the things that you raise on a related note is the way that evolution has been talked about in these terms of uh, competition and, you know, that it was very much all about survival in, in a kind of negative sense. And you cite some of the more famous uh, examples of evolution and probably, as you say, some of the more depressing ones, the the depressing reads. Richard Dawkins is very well known for his book, Mm -hmm. The Selfish Gene. And you do bring that up as something that had coloured your view of evolution before you really got looking further into it. And I know that you're not the only one. So I wonder if you could talk to us about how you going on this research process changed or or were you pleasantly surprised that there was more to evolution than I guess the normative discussions and narratives that we have around evolution currently? Yeah, exactly. You know, I uh, was brought up in a Christian household. So I went to a Christian school, which meant that when we got to the chapter about evolution that the teacher would say well that's not uh, that's not true we've got <laughs> you don't have to believe that etc so i think i was around 18 or 19 years old that i sort of f- first delved into uh, the theory of evolution and i remember feeling quite rep- depressed after i really understood it right this whole view of life which meant that 99% of all species are already extinct and this yeah this whole picture of animals dying all the time and then uh, certain uh, species or or animals are being selected so that they can actually pass in their genes to the next generation i don't know it seemed like a quite depressing picture to me yeah oh and obviously there's the the very famous book from 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 richard dawkins which is i mean i must uh, must say that it's really a masterpiece right it's a masterpiece about the role that genes play in evolution but it also had a quite dark message there's one part in the book or at least in the earlier versions of the book where he says you know, let's just teach altruism and generosity to our kids because they're born selfish, right? So again, quite depressing. Um, so it was also really fascinating for me to to find out that actually in the last 10 to 15 years, biologists and evolutionary anthropologists have moved in a very, very different direction. It was pretty much the opposite direction, you know, as I talked about. They, they, uh, they describe our evolution as a process of survival of the friendliest. So yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we're alone in this universe, right? And maybe we are at the end of a very, very long history of evolution, right? It, this is just one thing to keep in mind is that human beings have only just arrived on the scene, right? I've, I sort of make this comparison in the book where, where I look at the history of life, right? Let me just look it up here. If you look at the history of life on Earth, like say the past 4,000 million years, and you represent it as one full calendar year, then, well, on January 1, obviously you have the first life on Earth. But then on December the 25th, the dinosaurs go extinct. And actually on December the 30, uh, 31st, so the last day of the year, on 11, at 11 p.m., only then the first humans appear. And then two minutes before midnight, two minutes before midnight, we invent agriculture. And then like in the last minute, we have everything that we call history, right? The story of the pyramids and the castles and the, the spaceships, etc. So we've, we are just such a small blip in the whole history of, of life on, the, on this earth. But we have sort of managed to 
yeah, to populate the whole globe. And we've actually been the first species to visit the moon, etc. So there is something special about us. And what makes it special is really this ability to cooperate and to work together. That's so true. And and I was thinking about that timeline while you were talking about how that relates back into the subject that you cover in a lot of depth, which is about war and violence and conflict mm-hmm. and where that really came about in the timeline of, of the world's history. Um, and it was interesting, and it, it has come up once before in a chat I had about uh, feminism for men. And we were talking about patriarchy and, you know, how do you find where this all came from and what was the point where things really started to descend? And you bring up a, a, a time, a point in time, which is really agriculture and and this point where humans started to go from being those hunter-gatherer nomads to settling in one spot and starting to build a set of possessions. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could share with us that that really important point in time and what kind of things pushed you to realise or uncover when you were doing the research around um, how humans have evolved uh, in their behaviours. And, I mean, it all goes back to this book, which is about human nature and whether Mm -hmm. we are inherently selfish, inherently violent, inherently sexist, inherently racist. Could you talk a a little bit about that? Well, it's really interesting, actually, is that Again, if you look at these nomadic and together societies, they're quite egalitarian. You could almost describe them as proto-feminist as well, right? There's, there's this striking equality between the sexes. Now, once these hunter-gatherers settle down, and we've got some case studies here. So, for example, there's a tribe in the Kalahari Desert, the Kung or the Juansi, uh, that... You know, there, there are cases where some, some of them settle down. And then you suddenly see this increase in, in gender inequality and also, for example, in, in domestic abuse. Um, it's, it's, it's really an interesting phenomenon. Um, so, yeah, w- when we settle down, you get the uh, and you get the invention of private property and uh, then you get hierarchy and you get distinctions between classes as well. And uh, then al- also... I think that the the whole theory that people are fundamentally selfish uh, becomes more popular. Because if you think about it, who benefits from a cynical view of human nature? Well, it's those in power, obviously. Because if we can trust each other, then we need them, right? Then you need powerful people to control the rest of us so that we make sure, right, we don't kill each other. Um, if you actually believe that most people are pretty decent, then that means that we can actually move to a very different kind of society. A much more egalitarian kind of society. So throughout the history of civilization, you know, the past 10,000 years, rulers have always been very wary of a more hopeful view of human nature because they know that it dangers, endangers their position, right? They need a cynical view of human nature to legitimize their authority. And I guess that's the dynamic you see playing out again and again ever since that, that moment. Yeah, and uh, you list some of those thinkers uh, across Western history that have really subscribed to the theory or the idea that humans are innately selfish, Mm -hmm. uh, including thinkers like Thucydides, Augustine, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Luther, Calvin, Burke, Bentham, Nietzsche, Freud, and America's founding fathers. And you bring up the example of veneer theory, which is uh, one of those really Mm 
interesting theories. And as you say, and you've already referenced, it comes up a lot when we see disasters, um, Mm -hmm. natural disasters. In terms of that thought exercise that the um, academic that you spoke with had, I really enjoyed that about the planet A and planet B. Hmm. And I wonder whether you could take us through it because when I was reading it and I didn't know what the answer was going to be, I was a little bit surprised at my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Could you share with us that anecdote, that thought experiment? Yeah, sure, sure. So this is a thought experiment from Tom Postmas. He's a professor of social psychology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And I had just written a piece about how people respond to disasters. And he told me that he's been asking his students the same question, you know, for years and years. And so the the thought exercise goes something like this. Uh, Imagine an airplane makes an emergency landing and breaks into three parts. As the cabin fills with smoke, everybody inside realizes we've got to get out of here. What happens? Now, on planet A, the passengers turn to their neighbors to ask if they're okay. Those needing assistance are helped out of the plane first. People are willing to give their lives, even for perfect strangers. On planet B, everyone's left to fend for themselves. Panic breaks out. There's lots of pushing and shoving. Children, the elderly, and people with disability get trampled underfoot. The question, which planet do we live on? Now, the interesting thing is that every time Postmas asked this question, around 97% of his students said that we live on planet B, right? The selfish planet, where it's everyone for himself. Um, and he has also asked this to, you know, third year students or master students or, you know, professional emergency responders. And again and again, the majority of people think that we live on the selfish planet. But the reality is the opposite. Right. As I, as I said earlier, we've got now 700 case studies of sociologists actually studying what happens after an emergency, whether it's, uh, you know, an airplane that crashes or um, 9-11, for example. This is a really fascinating example uh, uh, as well um, that people just uh, respond with so much cooperation we've got eyewitness accounts of people who are going down the stairs of the burning twin towers on on 9-11 and they're literally saying to each other no you go first no you go first no you go first right in the staircase it's just unimaginable but that's 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 what happens time and again so here you have this fact from from science that well, there are a few facts that we have more evidence for, but that is so blithely ignored, right? We really ignore that all the time. Yeah. Well, I was interested when I was reading it because I picked planet A and I wondered whether I'd been primed to pick that response uh, because of Australia's bushfires over the summer huh. um, because it was just so recent in my memory uh-huh. and the experience was so visceral that I just instantly picked A and and it reminded me of you know the global outpouring that we saw of people donating money and mm-hmm. you know Australians at points actually being so helpful that they were almost unhelpful yeah. um, and that politicians had to tell Australians actually please don't keep giving us things we need your money rather than your goods or huh, you know huh. there were so many examples of of yeah. everyone pulling together that I actually struggled to find um, or think of an example where there was that example of a selfish, individualistic human being that was kind of taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. And this is probably, I mean, it's a reason for hope because we are entering an era of climate disaster after climate disaster, right? So mm. just imagine that we would live in a world where people would respond by looting and plundering and, and being violent every time there's an earthquake or a tsunami or or, or a bushfire or something like that. I mean, that would be hell, right? Luckily, we live in a very different kind of world. 
Yeah, and it is really convincing. I've got to say your arguments, and you do go through some of the areas where people might be a little bit sceptical, and one of those that you really single out, which is probably one of the most obvious for anyone listening, which is the Holocaust. And you talk about Auschwitz and people questioning, well, can anyone or everyone be a Nazi if they're in the right circumstances? Like Mm -hmm. what makes someone bad or evil and I think a lot of people try to use labels like they're a monster they're evil you know it's a shocking uncommon example of humanity and you do look at this darker side and you find reasons why it could have happened one of which was around um, when you're looking at German soldiers Mm -hmm. this discussion of it wasn't about ideology necessarily it was about something else uh, a bond could you share with us those thoughts because I think they are important to our understanding of this yes so this is obviously the big question that hangs over this whole book right how can you ever write a book about human kindness and cooperation uh, if we are also the cruelest species on the planet because that's i mean that's obviously true we are on the one hand the friendliest species on the planet capable of cooperating on this huge scale but we are also doing things that are just you don't see them in the animal kingdom you know with other animals like exterminating whole groups of other people. You know, I've never heard of a penguin or, I don't know, a bird who does, does that kind of things. It's like these are singularly human crimes. Um, so how do we explain that? Uh, it's the irony of writing a book like this, that you have to go on for hundreds of pages about sort of all the dark chapters in, in human history. Now, after the Second World War ended, uh, there was a whole new generation of social psychologists who was obsessed with this question, right? How do we explain all these crimes? Is there a Nazi in each and every one of us? And there were all these really famous experiments being done by uh, social psychologists like Stanley Milgram, who did these famous shock experiments that most people have heard about, where just yeah, normal subjects were apparently willing to shock an innocent stranger who was sh- sh- sitting in another room, like give very dangerous electric shocks. Um, and you had the Stanford Prison Experiment by Philip Zimbardo, who, um, yeah, sort of in just a couple of days managed to turn healthy, nice, decent students uh, into sadistic monsters. And again and again, the message of these researchers was that, uh, yeah, again, another version, I think, of veneer theory, that there's a Nazi below the surface in each and every one of us. Now, I'm quite skeptical of that. In the book, I go over all these experiments and I try to show that actually they've often been misreported. And in the case of of the Stanford Prison Experiment, well, that's actually a hoax, right? We now know that Simbardo specifically instructed his students to be as sadistic as possible because he said, you know, I need these results so that I can go to the press and uh, and then basically say how horrible prisons are and you've got to help me with this. Um, and so I try to find a different kind of explanations because i mean then the mystery only becomes bigger right if it's not if if we're not sort of evil deep down or cruel deep down uh then how can you explain all the atrocities of the second world war and all the other wars and ethnic cleansings and genocides etc etc so i mean i cannot obviously pretend to give a full answer to to this question i mean libraries full of books have, have to be written about that and they have been written about that mm. um but i do focus on some things that i think are interesting so in the first place i think there's a connection between our capacity for friendliness and our groupish behavior and our tribal behavior so many of of our worst crimes are committed not in the name of sadism but in the name of friendship and of loyalty 
and because we succumb to peer pressure, uh, right? So indeed, in the, I've got one chapter in the book about the question why the German soldiers kept fighting in 1944 and 1945 when it was clear they were going to lose the war, right? But still, they kept going on. And actually, the German military is probably one of the most effective fighting forces in world history, right? On average, they uh, were 50% more effective in terms of casualties, right, that they inflicted on the enemy than Allied soldiers. So why did they keep on fighting? Even in 1945, you know, the last months of the war, they were still fanatics. Uh, why did this happen? At first, uh, the Allied psychologists thought that they must have been totally brainwashed, right? That that must be the explanation. But then they started interviewing prisoners of war and they kept hearing the same answer, you know, the same reply when, when uh, the question was asked, why, why were you still fighting? And the answer was Kameradschaft, you know, uh, comradeship, friendship, that most of these soldiers were not so much fighting for their great ideology, even though, I mean, that did play a role, but the much, much bigger role was played in, in, in this respect by, um, yeah, by basically fighting for your friends and not wanting to let your friends down. Now, I'm not saying that ideology is unimportant. I'm just saying that for the average foot soldier, comradeship was much more important and that if you want to look at the role of ideology sort of the idea that you know people were really creating a sort of trying to create a better world i think that's more important if you look at the nazi leadership and also if you look at elite troops like the ss etc etc so um uh, i think the the thing that strikes out here again and again is that so much evil is done in the name of good and this is a terrifying very uncomfortable fact about our species Right. And it also makes you question your own motivations. Right. Because, mm. yeah, so often we do these horrible things uh, and we have our, th these, this, this kind of alibi where we say, well, actually, I'm trying to improve the world or I'm doing this for my friends or, you know, I want to be loyal. Exactly. The ordinary, as you say, the ordinary people have those those motivations often. But you mm -hmm. do say that their leaders are a very different story. And you highlight war criminals like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels as examples of paranoid narcissists. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in the fact that you highlight a term acquired sociopathy. Mm -hmm. And you say that essentially these people who rise to positions of power a lot of them, a common theme can be that they display certain tendencies that literally someone with brain damage would actually have and that these powerful elites who think of themselves as a certain way also apply their beliefs to others and think that everyone else will see yeah. the world in the same way. Could you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, so we know from, again, a huge amount of psychological studies that power corrupts you know power is this really dangerous drug uh, if you put powerful people in brain scans then you'll see that certain parts of their brain that are involved with empathy for example they don't really work that well anymore it's it's a little bit as if powerful people have become unplugged right from the rest of society that they're not connected to the wi-fi anymore uh, and they're just just on their own what makes makes them capable of things that other people just can't right for example, if you don't feel shame anymore, then you can say crazy things and do crazy things that other people would just die, right? When they say or do similar things. Um, we talked earlier about 
this phenomenon among nomadic and togetherers, you know, the, the survival of the friendliest phenomenon and that humbleness was really a prerequisite to survive. Now, this really started to change once we settled down. Then we entered an era that I would describe as the survival of the shameless era. And we still see this today, actually. It's a very strange thing that actually four to eight percent of CEOs have sociopathic tendencies, while only one percent of the population has sociopathic tendencies. So they're overrepresented. If you look at many political leaders, they really seem narcissists as well. You know, whether you talk about a Boris Johnson or Bolsonaro in Brazil or Trump in the US, I mean, they their true superpower is sort of uh, being immune to shame. Right? They can just do and say things yeah, that, that other people just can't. And we've created a kind of society, kind of competitive society, where this actually helps them. You know, this actually helps them to gain power. Now, imagine Trump in prehistory, you know, among nomadic hunter-gatherers. He wouldn't have survived for long because nobody would have liked him and he would have died alone. Right? You really need your friends. But now he's become the most powerful man in the whole world which is really an indictment, I think, of, yeah, basically our current democratic system, that you have this survival of the shameless process going on. And that's, I think, why we really need to rethink how we're doing democracy right now, because democracy should be all about keeping those in power in check, right? And to make sure that power is distributed and to make sure that, yeah, people don't become shameless and, yeah, our democracy doesn't have a great track record at that point. Mm. And it seems like that's why a lot of the leaders who break this mould, like Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, mm-hmm. is often admired by a number of people because she does display the humility of someone who is not a sociopath like yeah, <laughs> some yeah, yeah. other leaders yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, and that is absolutely wonderful to see, obviously. I think it's really humbleness is really prerequisite for effective political leadership. Right. And it, but it's really hard to stay that way. <laughs> I mean, uh, I must, I, I experience it often in my life as well. Right. If you get, if you get compliments for, I don't know, for, for this or that book, uh, you have to keep reminding yourself that, you know, you're not that special. You're just relying on the research of so many others. Right. And you were really privileged to be able to write this book and to connect all the dots, et cetera, et cetera. But you really sort of have to fight your own tendencies in there because, this is a story as old as humanity. You know, power is a dangerous drug. It corrupts you. So be wary of it. Yeah, it's a really important lesson, I definitely think. Just to finish out our chat, I wanted to talk about the story that really has been the headline of this book. It's the real Lord of the Flies, the story that you've uncovered that does involve an Australian, which was interesting, and some wonderful Tongans. And it was really exciting to see uh, on Twitter when you were talking about the fact that you've um, now going to be turning it into a movie. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really the craziest experience of my life so far. You know, it was actually, I think, a couple of weeks after we met in 2017 that I managed to track down the captain who had rescued these six kids who had lived for 50 months on the island of Ata, uh, which is uh, to the south of uh, Tonga. And I spoke to him, and he also put me in contact with one of the original Lord of the Flies kids, uh, a man named Mano. And together, they told me the story of what had really happened. And it turned out that it was this really happy story of friendship and cooperation and resilience, right? And actually, Peter and Mano were still friends, right? They are still friends up until this day, you know? They, they're soulmates, basically. 
So, yeah, three years ago, I, I, I wrote this book, obviously. I wrote the chapter, and then we already published it in Dutch um, in September last year. Uh, and, you know, people like the story, but it didn't do that much because Lord of the Flies is not that well known, I think, in the Netherlands. But then three weeks ago, we published in the, in the Guardian, you know, an excerpt from the book. And it, just, it went totally, totally viral. Like 8 million people read it. <laughs> and, and suddenly there were dozens of film companies around the globe who wanted to buy the rights to the story. A whole of Hollywood wanted it. But I was like, but, you know, it's not my story, obviously. I mean, people in Tonga have been telling it to, to each other for generations. So I, did, I, I guess I did play a role in sort of making it well known around the world. But I really felt like I had to get into contact with uh, the survivors and with Peter Warner, the captain who I knew was, was still alive. And so last week we had this extraordinary moment. It was, it was really, uh, I must say, one of the highlights of my career so far, where we had a Zoom call across four different time zones with four of the original Lord of the Flies kids. Two others have sadly passed away. Uh, and Peter Warner, the captain. And we made a collective decision about which film company to go with. So in the end, we chose a new regency who also made uh, The Revenant and uh, 12 Years a Slave. Um, so yeah, now there's going to be a huge, big Hollywood production about the real Lord of the Flies. And uh, I still can't quite believe it, I must, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. And it's also more amazing to me that it was not prominent that this story that really is just amazing like 15 months on an island and they're mm -hmm. in their kind of adolescent years and you know are cooperating so well and surviving and someone breaks their leg and they set the leg mm -hmm. and you know keep a fire going for a year like there's so many things that people that age probably would not have ever had to have as a challenge such yeah. a, a mental challenge and physical challenge yeah. And, um, yeah, I wondered why it hadn't been so prominent beyond Tonga. Well, there are a couple of reasons here, probably. I mean, in the first place, they were, these were not white kids. And we know how Hollywood is, or at least has been for a long time. If you're not white, then they're not interested anymore. Um, the other reason is probably that if this would be a fictional story, people would say, oh, this is so unrealistic, right? This is so romantic. This is not how people would behave, right? It's, uh, it's almost too good to be true. But there you go, it actually happened. Then when you ask the question, how did they manage to survive? I think you can sort of say two things. So obviously in my book, I focus on human nature, right? I've written a book about human nature, which is about, well, in the first place, how people pull together in times of crisis. So in that respect, it shouldn't be that surprising that these kids did that as well. But that on the other hand, you also have to acknowledge that there's something specific to Tongan culture, right? They have many skills that other kids from other parts of the globe just don't have when they're 15 years old. You know, they could, they're mm. really good at swimming and they're really good at fishing and they, they could farm, you know, they could tend to the garden. So when there will be a movie, I think it's really important that they'll go really deep in Tongo culture to explain how these kids managed to survive and also how their spirituality helped them. Um, I've talked to some of them and that, that, that's been really important to them as well. So I think it's sort of a combination between human nature and human, uh, human culture. In my book, I obviously focus more on human nature because, I mean, it's basically the same with the British and the Germans who during the Second World War, they said, felt they were so special. While well, in fact, human nature was going on, right? People pulled together in times of crisis. But in this story, I think two things are going on at the same time. Yeah. And one of the things I just wanted to end on is the fact that you do reference to the fact that this is a radical book mm. and people might not think that they go, oh, how could it be radical? 
but mm. you do bring out what is essentially what I notice as well, having seen how power operates. It's mm. the fact that, as you say, to stand up for human goodness is to take a stand against the powers that be. And for the powerful, a hopeful view of human nature is downright threatening, subversive, seditious. It implies that we're not selfish beasts that need to be reined in, restrained and regulated. And it also implies that we need a different kind of leadership. And I just felt that was such a a really important insight when I read that. And it did go down to just how subversive and radical something like what you've put forward with all the evidence that you've amassed is. Yeah, yeah. Believing in the good of humanity is a revolutionary act. It's it's an act of hope. It's an act that, well, it impels you to act. It means that you have to get out of bed in the morning and do something to try and change the world. Uh, It's the opposite of cynicism. I mean, I always think that cynicism is is basically another word for laziness. Because if people are really so selfish, then what's the point anyway? Right? What's the point of of activism, of trying to improve the world? You know, then then in the end, it's not going to work out. Now, if you turn it around and if you believe that most people are pretty decent, then that gives you big responsibility as well to do something. And yes, those in power are not going to like you because it really threatens their position. It implies that we can move to a very different kind of society, a much more egalitarian society with totally different kind of schools where kids can follow their intrinsic motivation, very different kind of companies where you don't have as much management anymore and much more democracy on the work floor, very different kind of prisons where you actually treat inmates with humanity instead of you know, just focusing on vengeance. You have a very different kind of democracy where it's not about you know, voting every three or four years, but it's actually about engaging and participating uh, also on a local level uh, and being a politician every now and then yourself. I mean, everything changes once you update your view of human nature. And I think the time has really come uh, to do that. If you want to be a realist these days, you, um, you need to move to a much more hopeful view of who we really are. Yeah, especially with climate change being mm. such an important issue that we need to, to join together on. Yeah. Uh, Rutger, thank you so much for a really important work. I know you're going to stay humble now that you've written a whole <laughs> book about how important it is. <laughs> I'll try. Thanks for having me, Amy. Until next time. Yes, exactly. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.